Section 19 of the Roman Triumvirates by Charles Merivale. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 9 Gaius Octavius succeeds to the inheritance of Julius Caesar. When the conspirators looked round, the hall was already empty. The senators had fled with precipitation. Centurions, lictors, and attendants had vanished with them, and the harangue which Brutus proposed to deliver found no hearers. Antonius had slipped through the crowd, exchanged clothes with a slave, and made his way to his own house on the Carinae. Among the citizens there was general consternation, none knowing on whom the next blow might fall or which party would be the first to resort to riot and massacre. Both had arms within reach. On the one hand, Decimus Brutus had provided for the defense of his friends by placing some gladiators hard by in the Pompeian theater. On the other, the city was filled with the dictator's veterans, and Lepidus, his master of the horse, commanded a legion outside the walls. The assassins now marched forth brandishing their bloody weapons and wrapping their gowns about their left arms as a defense against a sudden attack. They reached the forum, preceded by a cap of liberty hoisted on a spear, exclaiming that they had slain a king and a tyrant. The place was filled with an agitated crowd, but these cries met with no response among them disconcerted by this indifference the liberators as they now called themselves retired hastily to secure a place of refuge on the capitoline here with the aid of the gladiators of decimus they barred the gates of the enclosure in the evening some of the nobles came to join them among these was cicero who though previously unconnected with the conspiracy recovered hope from its first success and advised that the senate should be convened immediately but brutus preferred to make another appeal to the feelings of the populace on the morrow he descended into the forum to him indeed personally the people listened with respect but against others who next addressed them they broke out into violence and drove the whole party back to their place of shelter meanwhile antonius had not been idle he had communicated secretly with Calpurnia and obtained possession of her husband's private treasure, and also of his will. With the aid of his two brothers, one a praetor, the other a tribune, he opened as consul the national coffers in the temple of Ops, and drew thence a store of coin with which he made advances to Lepidus and received promises of support. Marcus Antonius who was now coming prominently to the front, had been hitherto slightly regarded as minister and companion of Caesar, but from this moment he assumed in many eyes the position of his natural successor. Hitherto known chiefly for his amours and his dissipation, he was now about to display the arts of a consummate politician. Cicero stood alone in dissuading the liberators from negotiating with him but they believed in his professions of loyalty, and hoped to gain an ascendancy over the pliant temper which had always yielded to the influence of the dictator. 
it was agreed that as consul he should convene the senate for the next day the seventeenth of march he appointed for the place of meeting the temple of tellus near the forum which he filled with armed soldiers the liberators dared not leave the capital and the discussion of their fatal deed was carried out in their absence the majority of the fathers would have stigmatized caesar as a tyrant and thereby justified his assassination but when antonius represented that this would be to annul his acts and appointments dolabella and others interested in them resisted the decree with all their might while the senators still deliberated antonius went forth into the forum the people hailed him with acclamations bidding him at the same time beware for his own life the senators were uneasy at this demonstration and cicero pointed out to them the only course that could relieve them with dignity from their embarrassment he demanded an amnesty or act of oblivion which would simply confirm every existing appointment and leave the deed of the conspirators to the judgment of posterity in private he had declared himself a warm approver of the tyrannicide but he now confessed in his public acts that the peace of the city and the interests of the senate required a compromise an amnesty was decreed the next day cicero harangued and calmed the populace the liberators were invited to descend from their place of refuge lepidus and antonius sending them their own children as hostages and the one entertaining brutus the other cassius at supper antonius and cassius were rude men and some rude repartees passed between them have you still a dagger under your arm asked the one yes truly replied the other to slay you with if you aspire to the tyranny next morning all parties met again in the curia and the dictator's assignment of provinces was confirmed trebonius succeeded in asia kimber in bithynia decimus in the cisalpine while macedonia was secured to marcus brutus and syria to cassius on the expiration of their office as praetors at home notwithstanding the power thus surrendered to the republican leaders antonius was still master of the situation since caesar was not a tyrant and his acts were sustained as legitimate his testament must be accepted and his remains honoured with a public funeral antonius recited to the people their favourite's last will he had adopted for his son the youthful octavius he had endowed the roman people with his gardens on the bank of the tiber and bequeathed to every citizen three hundred sesterces this liberality warmed the feelings of the excitable multitude in his favour the funeral pyre had been constructed in the campus but the eulogy of the deceased was to be pronounced in the forum a shrine glittering with gold was erected before the rostra in which the body was laid upon a couch of gold and ivory at its head was suspended like a warrior's trophy the toga in which the hero had been slain hacked by the assassin's daggers the actual remains were indeed concealed from public gaze but they were replaced by a waxen figure on which his three-and-twenty wounds were faithfully represented 
Dramatic shows formed as usual a part of the funeral ceremony, and the sensibilities of the people were moved by the scenic effect of the deaths of Agamemnon and Ajax, caused by the treason or cruelty of their nearest and dearest. When they were thus melting with compassion or glowing with resentment, Antonius stepped forward as the chief magistrate of the Republic to recite the praises of the mighty dead. He read the decrees which had been heaped on Caesar, declaring his person inviolate, his authority supreme, himself the chief and father of his country, and then he pointed to the bleeding corpse which neither laws nor oaths had shielded from outrage. Lastly, with a movement toward the capital, he shouted, I at least am prepared to keep my vow, to avenge the victim I could not save. The people had been gradually worked up to feelings of fanatic devotion. They forbade the body to be carried outside the city. They insisted that it should be burnt within the walls. Chairs, tables, and benches were snatched from the adjacent buildings. A heap of fuel was raised before the pontiff's dwelling in the forum, and the body hastily placed upon it. The temple of Castor and Pollux stood hard by on the spot where the two majestic warriors in olden time had announced the victory of Regulus. Now also two youths of august mien and countenance, girt with swords and javelin in hand, were seen to apply the torch. A divine sanction was thus given to the deed. Every scruple was overruled. The people continued to pile up brushwood, the veterans added their arms, the matrons their ornaments, even the trinkets on the children's frocks were cast into the fire. Caesar was beloved by the Romans. He was not less dear to the foreigners. Gauls, Iberians, Africans, and Orientals crowded around the pile and gave vent to their sense of the common calamity. The success of Antonius was complete. The populace soon lashed themselves into fury, rushed through the streets with blazing brands, and tried to fire the houses of the conspirators. Their rude assaults were for the moment repulsed, but Brutus and his associates dared not show themselves in public, and either escaped from the city or lay concealed within it. It was plain that the cause of the liberators was lost at the centre of the commonwealth. The populace raged against them, while the chief of their party in the Senate shrank from assisting them or vindicating their deed. Antonius acted with consummate craft in the use he made of the amnesty which the senators had decreed. He proposed that Sextus, the last surviving son of the great Pompeius, should be invited to return to Rome and assume such a place at the head of his father's friends as they should now choose to grant him. He was well aware, perhaps, that Sextus, in command of his maritime forces, had other ends in view, and that the name of Pompeius had lost all influence over the Republican party in the Senate. But the proposal seemed at least conciliatory, and might be taken as a token of political moderation. A still more politic stroke was the resolution which he carried for abolishing forever the office and title of dictator, a magistracy not less odious to the Senate now than it had formerly been to the people. But among the excited multitude of the Forum, 
an era of turbulence and sedition had set in. The assassination of their favorite, Caesar, was the pretext rather than the actual cause of the tumults with which they continued to agitate the city. Antonius made these disturbances an excuse for surrounding himself with a bodyguard under the sanction of the Senate itself, and this force he soon raised to an army of six thousand men, with which he effectually kept peace in the streets. A low impostor named Amatius, pretending to be a kinsman of Marius and Caesar, had tried to ingratiate himself with the populace. The consuls opposed him with energy, overthrew him, and put him to death. Their zeal in defense of the Republic was blindly applauded by the Senate. Even Cicero, though he still utterly distrusted Antonius, could exclaim that his colleague Dolabella was the best and bravest of magistrates. The Senate had confirmed Caesar's acts. Antonius contrived that this confirmation should be extended to the public measures which the dictator had contemplated, even though they had not yet been carried into effect. Armed with this sweeping decree, he proceeded to forge authority for every project he had himself in view. Laws, treasures, magistracies, all now lay at his feet. Things which the dictator had not dared himself to do, Antonius carried into execution in his name. He sold preferments and provinces, retrieved his own dilapidated fortunes, and purchased the support of senators, soldiers, and tributary sovereigns. Under pretense of carrying out Caesar's latest intentions, he reversed the appointments which Caesar had actually made, and broke his recent engagement to the liberators in depriving Brutus and Cassius of their promised governments. Syria he assigned to Dolabella in reward for his opportune support. Macedonia, with the legions which Caesar had mustered at Apollonia, he seized for himself. The rule of one man was absolute throughout the empire. The tyrant is dead, sorrowfully murmured Cicero, but the tyranny still lives. The tyranny still survived in the person of the consul, but the consul, it might be urged, had been popularly appointed. His term of office was fixed and brief. At the end of a year, at furthest, he must descend into the ranks of the private citizens. It still remained to be seen whether autocratic powers thus strictly limited could be indefinitely extended in the person of a man who possessed no claims to the support of nobles or commons, of provincials or allies. Never yet had any pretender to sovereignty at Rome essayed the crime with so little personal influence in his favor. But if Antonius should succeed to the province of Macedonia, and to the command of the legions of the great Caesar, he would have the material instrument of power in his hand, and all political calculations must depend upon the disposition of this omnipotent soldiery. Antonius was a bold and sanguine man, resolute in act and confident in his powers. But in forecasting the issue of his daring intrigue, he proved, after all, mistaken. Gaius Octavius had spent some months among the legions at Apollonia, and the address with which he had attached them to himself gave token of the genius he was about to display on a wider theatre. 
surprised amidst his juvenile exercises by the news of his uncle's assassination he was not yet aware of the perilous inheritance which had been settled upon him but his mother's letters from rome reminding him of the dictator's favour and of his nearness to him in blood inflamed his hopes and determined him to return at once to the city and brave every danger his friends would have dissuaded him but the soldiers nearest at hand moved by the name of their hero caesar pledged themselves to support him without a moment's hesitation the audacious stripling threw himself almost alone on the coast of apulia here he received a copy of caesar's will as well as of the senate's recent decrees thereupon he assumed his legitimate designation of gaius julius caesar octavianus and presented himself to the garrison of brundisium as the adopted son of the great imperator by these soldiers he was saluted with enthusiasm the friends and freedmen of the dictator flocked around him the veterans of the colonies drew their swords and offered to avenge his parents assassination but the young adventurer was cautious as well as bold he declined the use or the display of force while he was yet uncertain of the course to be pursued with rare self-command he contented himself with addressing the senate in mild and temperate language claiming as a private citizen the inheritance of a deceased father arriving at cumae he learnt that cicero was sojourning in the neighbourhood he went to visit the desponding patriot and assured him of the loyal moderation of his own views the veteran but too facile statesman was at once captivated and persuaded himself that the son and heir of the great usurper was a faithful child of the republic at the end of april just six weeks from the dictator's death the young Caesar entered Rome. Antonius was absent at the moment, soliciting the adherence of fresh allies throughout the peninsula, and disgusting even the lax morality of his countrymen by the bold and coarse licentiousness of his private conduct. The royal progress which he made in company with the Grecian courtesan Cytheris was a fitting prelude to the splendor of his ignominious amours which were to follow with the Egyptian Cleopatra and degraded him to the lowest pitch in the estimation of the patriots and moralists of rome octavius as it may still be convenient to call the young aspirant to the name and fortunes of caesar was at this time less than nineteen years of age but neither his mother attia nor his stepfather philippus could dissuade him from claiming his inheritance he presented himself before the praetor and avowed himself the son and heir of the dictator he mounted the tribune and harangued the people pledging himself to discharge the sums bequeathed them by his father which antonius had failed to do but the consul felt no alarm he cared not to return to rome before the middle of may and left the field of intrigue open to his diligent rival for one important month octavius turned every instant to account making many friends and conciliating many enemies till he felt himself strong enough to upbraid antonius openly with his remissness in prosecuting the assassins at the same time he publicly laid claim to the treasures which were being withheld from him antonius evaded or disallowed the claim 
There was no money, he said, forthcoming. The money was not Caesar's but the state's, but for his own ingenuity all Caesar's fortune would have been forfeited and his acts annulled. Octavius was thus thrown upon his own resources. He sold all he had, he borrowed of his friends and kinsmen, and effected the discharge of his public obligations. From that moment he assumed a position of authority and power. He had gained the people to his side. He had convinced politicians of his ability and force of character. Antonius now felt that he had to reckon with no mean antagonist, and must determine whether to deal with him as a friend or an enemy. The liberators might give him less uneasiness, for their counsels were vacillating and timid. There was none among them who could take a decided step for the maintenance of the Republic. Cicero, though spirited in tone and patriotic in sentiment, was wholly without power either himself to lead or to breathe animation into his associates. The chief men among them occupied themselves with their private enterprises of no general interest to their cause. Decimus led his troops against the barbarians in the valleys of the Alps. Cassius withdrew into Syria to seize the command there before his legitimate time of office. Sextus Pompeius made descents upon various points in the western Mediterranean, intent apparently on indiscriminate plunder. Brutus quitted Rome, but lingered on the coast of Campania, whence he gave directions for the praetorial shows which he dared not attend in person. At a later period he made up his mind to anticipate his term of government in Macedonia, but by the time he had crossed the Adriatic, Antonius had already secured the bulk of Caesar's legions in that quarter. The senators already regarded him as their master. When one of their number, Calpurnius Piso, ventured to inveigh against him, his revilings passed unheeded. Though eminent in rank, he had no personal character to support them. Cicero, who had fled reluctantly from Italy, still kept in sight of the shore he loved, and when driven by the weather to come to land in Calabria, refused again to embark, and turned with mournful presentiments toward Rome. The consul had convoked the Senate for September 1st. Cicero had entered the city the day before, and was gratified by his favorable reception. Like other statesmen of his time, he never took account of the excessive instability of the Italian populace. He shrank, however, from attending the sitting of the Senate. Supplications were to be voted, the dead Caesar was to be enrolled among the national divinities, Antonius was present, and soon took advantage of the patriot's absence. The enmity between the two seems to have been instinctive and deep-seated. Cicero had been once banished and his house on the Palatine demolished. Antonius threatened to repeat the injury, but his menaces might be regarded perhaps as mere noisy declamations and made little impression. The consul carelessly quitted the city to indulge in his licentious orgies at his Tiburtine villa, when Cicero seized the occasion to take his own place among the senators and inveigh and set terms against the adversary who was in his turn absent. These sham duels of the Roman orators, not infrequently recurring, may raise a smile. But in the present instance, 
they have preserved for us some of the most stirring specimens of roman eloquence the insults of antonius had stung cicero to the quick and he retorted with the weapon which he found most convenient first he vindicated his own conduct both in leaving the city and in returning to it while he refrained from any allusion to the tyrannicide he analyzed the subsequent proceedings of antonius and exposed his abuse of caesar's papers the posthumous demands he had advanced the resolutions he had carried through the comitia of the tribes in defiance of the senate itself he had recalled whom he would from banishment made what laws he pleased appointed his own creatures to office and pleaded the will of the tyrant for every act of his own selfish and venal policy the senate not less unstable than the populace warmed into admiration and seemed for a moment to respond to the enthusiasm of the orator antonius himself was roused to fury and hastened back to rome to make his reply in the curia cicero was more afraid perhaps of his violence than of his arguments his friends at least persuaded him to avoid a personal collision and as the one entered the city the other withdrew into campania the senate seems to have listened obsequiously to whichever in turn claimed its attention End of section nineteen